Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and thanks for joining us today at Back to the Bible Canada. Today, Dr. Neufeld begins the discussion on a subject that has perhaps caused more conversation and in some respects, confusion than perhaps any other. It's the doctrine of the Trinity, or God in three persons. So let's begin in what we will discuss throughout the entire week, right here on Back to the Bible Canada. Matthew 28 records Jesus' final instruction to his disciples before he was taken up into heaven. They contain Jesus' marching orders. He said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You know, the key to understand this text is to know something of the Greek language. In English, this text seems to have four commands, go, make disciples, baptize, and teach. But in the Greek language, this sentence carries only one command. This is the command to make disciples. Everything else is a description of how disciples are made. We could rewrite the sentence to say, in your going, make disciples, make people into followers of Jesus, and you do this by baptizing them and teaching them everything I've taught you. So disciples are made by baptizing and teaching. Foundational to Christian training is the initiatory rite of baptism, and this is to be done in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Christian church has coined a word to describe what we're talking about. It's the word Trinity. At a foundational level, Jesus wants us to introduce people to the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity is perhaps one of the most widely held doctrines in the Christian church, and yet one of the most poorly understood and taught doctrines of the church. Whether you speak with Roman Catholics, Orthodox Christians, Anglicans, or the many different Protestant denominations, all hold to the doctrine of the Trinity. And that's remarkable. In spite of all the differences between Christian churches, this doctrine has held remarkably strong. Well, I know there are fringe groups and cultic groups and liberal groups who have denied it, but this doctrine has stood unmoved. We can, in fact, rightfully say that the belief in the Trinity is the most fundamental of all Christian beliefs. Now, while that's true, it's also true that this doctrine has been greatly misunderstood. Many people find the doctrine confusing and complicated. Many Christians have no idea where in the Bible they would go in order to find it. Many Christians have no idea of what practical value there is in believing in the Trinity. And when they think of the Trinity, they're not sure exactly what it is they're supposed to think about. And since, as we have said in this series, the most important thing about us is what comes into our minds when we think about God, what we think about the Trinity is of great importance. And so this week, let's talk about the Trinity. But what's so important about this matter? Why did Jesus think that at the beginning of our Christian walk at baptism, we should be introduced to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Let's begin at the most basic and fundamental level. There is only one God, not three gods, not three and one at the same time. No, no, there's only one God. You know, some people's hearts, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit constitute three separate gods. 
Or at least they might say, well, there is one God, but there are kind of three gods as well. Or or perhaps God plays three different roles. So in broad terms, they think of God in the Old Testament as a fierce punishing God. And then Jesus, as presented the Gospels, as the kind and compassionate God of mercy. And then in other parts of the New Testament as the Holy Spirit who gives us power or he is the empowering God. And out of this blurred understanding of the Trinity comes a host of errors and faulty ideas about God. You know, I once read the commentator William Barclay try to explain some of the things that God did in the Old Testament, and he actually said that was before God was a Christian. Of course, this contradicts the idea of the inerrancy of Scripture and of the unchangeable nature of God. I mean, there are a lot of weird and wacky and contradictory ideas out there. So let's get this matter straight. There is only one God. Listen to what God himself says about the subject. I'm reading Isaiah 43, 10, and 11. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me there is no Savior." I have revealed and saved and proclaimed, I am not some foreign God among you. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. Yes, and from ancient days, I am he. Uh, We could add so many different passages to that. Basic to all teaching about the nature of God is a passage that every single Hebrew child would have been required to learn and repeat countless times throughout his or her lifetime. The passage I'm referring to has been called the Shema. Shema is a Hebrew word that simply means hear. And so it's the first word of a very important passage in the Old Testament taken from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Not two, not three, one. Isaiah 44, verse 8 says, Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. And so once and for all, let's settle the matter. When we're talking about the Trinity, we're not saying that God is both one and three at the same time. We are saying as clearly as the Bible says it over and over again that there is but one God. Christianity is a monotheism. We do not believe in a multiplicity of gods. No one ever becomes a god. God does not change. There is but one God and there will ever be but one God. See, once we establish that as a clear and unalterable truth, we're ready to move to the next level. The one true God sometimes in the Old Testament refers to himself in the plural. Let's start with the account of creation. In Genesis 1 verse 26, when God is about to create man, he says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, in considering this passage, let us and our several possibilities are to be considered. One possibility is that what we have here is what has been called the plural of majesty. In other words, it's a form of speech. Sometimes, at least so it's argued by some, a king might refer to himself in the plural. He might say, we agree, or we're not amused, or we will be gracious. These are the things that all kings might say, at least so it was argued. Now, the problem with that idea is rather simple. Never in the Old Testament, as far as I am aware, never either in an ancient Near Eastern document did any king ever refer to himself in the plural. Only God does this. It's unique to him. That then leaves us with a second possibility. 
Perhaps God is speaking to someone else. Since it seems quite likely that the angels existed before the creation of the man and the woman, perhaps God's speaking to them. But that also is highly unlikely, and here's why. Human beings are not created in the image of the angels. Neither did they participate in the creation of the man or the woman. God alone did this. And so we can see God is not speaking as ancient kings did, nor is he speaking to the angels. Who then is God speaking to? See, we're left with a puzzle. And we should read Genesis 1.26 and note that it does not explain itself. Only that the only God refers to himself in the plural, and that's as far as that passage goes. And this is not the only time we have this phenomenon. In Genesis 3, verse 22, after Adam and Eve sinned, it says, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Again, the plural is used. In Genesis 11, verse 7, after the incident of the Tower of Babel, God says, Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language. And in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8, when God is calling the prophet, it says, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And so we can see that even though God repeatedly affirms that he is but one, he sometimes speaks of himself in the plural. And if that was not enough, there are passages that seem to highlight this idea. Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7 says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. See, in a very strange fashion, when speaking of the glory of God, the text speaks of God and then refers to his God. Now, clearly, there is no one God but the one God. So how can he speak of his God? See, before we move on, let's look at one more Old Testament passage, and this one found in Proverbs 30, verse 4. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name, and what is his son's name? His son's name? Does God suddenly have a son? For now, let's remember what we've learned. The Old Testament does not provide us with the doctrine of the Trinity. And this for a very important reason, because in the Old Testament, the issue of idolatry was ever before Israel. And so the Old Testament repeatedly affirms that there is but one God. And yet, the Old Testament opens the door to a mystery. How can the one God speak to himself in the plural and even refer to his son? More when we return. Okay, well, that straightens it out. Well, not really. But it does point out that there is a profound mystery here, but a mystery so central to our understanding of God that it's critical that we begin to wrap our heads around the importance of its truth. But if we're to expand our understanding, we'll need to involve the New Testament. And we'll do that next, right here on Back to the Bible Canada. What we know to be true about God is critical to our daily walk with Jesus. And that's the reason Dr. Newfeld felt so strongly about offering this series you're listening to, This Is Our God. And we believe so strongly in the importance of this series that we've worked hard to make it available for you, a friend, or your church library at a reduced cost, and included all the shipping costs. So right now, if you'd like to have the entire This Is Our God series, we would be blessed to put it in your hands for a cost of only $18. All you need to do is give us a call at 1-800-663-2425 or order it online at backtothebible.ca. 
Now let's return to this great series with Dr. John Newfeld. In our study of the Old Testament, we find no doctrine of the Trinity, but the Old Testament surely leaves the door wide open to such a doctrine. Psalm 110 has Yahweh speaking to my Lord. It says, the God of Israel speaks to David's Lord, who must also be God. God is speaking to God. But again, this is not explained, only that we're told it's going on. See, in many ways, the New Testament is a commentary on the Old Testament. In light of the fact that Jesus has come, the Old Testament can now be fully explained. And one of those explanations is what the Old Testament actually meant when it referred to God in the plural. See, the first hint that a full explanation is underway in the New Testament is found early on in the ministry of Jesus. Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 to 17, records the baptism of Jesus. See, at his baptism, as Jesus was coming up out of the water, the heavens were opened, and Matthew tells us that the Spirit of God descended on him bodily, and a voice spoke from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son. The Lord is speaking to the Lord, just like what happened in Psalm 110. I mention the baptism of Jesus not to say that it proves the Trinity. We'll have to wait for that. But we should notice that the baptism of Jesus disproves a faulty idea of God. See, there's an ancient heresy in the church called modalism. Modalism has a shape-shifter view of God. It teaches that God appears in different modes or in different manners at different times. Mostly, they taught in the Old Testament, he appears as Father. And in the Gospels, he appears as the Son. And many of the letters of Paul, he appears as the Spirit. But that can't be the case, for here at Christ's baptism, the Son is in the water, the Father is speaking from heaven, and the Spirit is descending. All three are present, not as different modes, but as different persons. The baptism of Jesus cancels out the idea often propounded by the the Jesus-only people who say that Jesus is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit at the same time. That's not true. Jesus and the Father are different persons, not to be confused with each other. Think about what happened when Jesus prayed. He's not praying to himself. He's praying to his Father, very much like what you and I do when we pray. Or when Jesus said he could do nothing except that which the Father has commanded him, he's saying that he's submitting to his Father. He's not submitting to himself. He's submitting to his Father. And so at the baptism of Jesus, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are three different persons, not different modes of the same person. You know, very good. Let's move on. There are a number of places in the New Testament where the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are referred to as distinct persons. You know, once we key in onto this fact that in the New Testament, the title God most often refers to the Father, once we see that, we'll begin to see a pattern. Consider 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14. This verse forms a blessing, probably a formulaic blessing, often given by people in the early church. It says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, which is to the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Or think of how 1 Peter opens up. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ, all three persons mentioned. 
Or listen to Ephesians 4, 4 4-6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, that's referring to the Son, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Or think of Jude, verses 20 and 21. But you, beloved, build yourself up in the most holy faith, and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourself in the love of God that is in the love of God the Father, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, all three persons are mentioned in a single breath. So what should we make of this? Who is the Father, who is the Son, and who is the Spirit? Well, clearly, they are distinct persons, and yet there are passages that emphasize their unity. I suppose there's no more famous a passage than that found in John 1, 1 1-2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. See, notice clearly, for as verse 18 will tell us, the Word became flesh, so clearly the Word is a reference to the Son, to Jesus. And God in this passage is a reference to the Father. In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God— And Jesus was God, and yet he was with God. See, how can he be both with God and be God at the same time? Or consider what Jesus taught in John 5, verses 22 to 23. The Father judges no one, he says, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. And so we might ask, how do people honor the Father? Well, they honor him as the eternal God, who is worthy of all worship. Well then, how should they honor the Son? Answer, they should honor him as the eternal God, who is worthy of all worship. And indeed, that's just how the New Testament treats the Son. In Revelation 1 verse 8, the book of Revelation begins by calling the Father the Alpha and the Omega. And then in Revelation 22, verse 13, the book of Revelation ends by calling Jesus the Son, yeah, the Alpha and the Omega. The Son is honored just as the Father is honored. See, the Bible is full of such references. Hebrews 1, verse 3 calls the Son the radiance of God the Father's glory and the exact imprint of His nature. Colossians 1:15 calls the Son the image of the invisible God. And 2 Peter 1 verse 1 calls Jesus our great God and Savior. But what of the Holy Spirit? How is he to be understood and how is he to be honored? Well, Romans 8, 26 to 27 says, The Spirit searches the depths of God. And in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 11, it says that he knows all the thoughts of God. And Jesus warned us against the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit in Matthew 12, verse 32. And Hebrews 10, verse 29 tells us that insulting the Holy Spirit is as serious as it is to trample the Son of God underfoot. Since Jesus taught us that the Spirit would be with us forever, we know that He, like the Father and the Son, exists for all of eternity. And furthermore, As we have already seen from numerous Bible passages, the Holy Spirit is mentioned right alongside of both the Father and the Son, and so it becomes clear. The Spirit is honored as much as or in the same honor as is afforded to both the Father and the Son. And so from a careful reading of the New Testament, we have a very clear affirmation. There is but one God, and yet this one God is seen to exist in three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Each of these three persons are afforded equal honor, and so we can see that each of these three persons are the one God. 
And from this evidence, we are left with an inescapable conclusion. While there is but one God, and only one God, there is some complexity in this one God, for this one God eternally exists as three distinct persons. Now, when we say things this way, we are immediately left scratching our heads. I mean, how do we visualize that? You know, some have suggested that perhaps God is like H2O. He appears as solid, a liquid, and a vapor. But a moment's thought will tell us this can't be the case. This sounds like the shapeshifter God or the God of the modalist who says sometimes God appears as Father and sometimes as Son and sometimes as Spirit. See, that is not so, as can be seen in the baptism of Jesus. Instead, we are left by saying something which I have been saying from the beginning of this series. Isaiah 40 verse 25 says, To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? See, from the beginning we have noticed that the God who truly exists, I mean the real God, is different from all other things we have ever encountered. I've never encountered a being who exists as three persons. But God is different from all other things, for He does exist as Father, Son, and Spirit. Stay with us through this week. There is so much more to say. Well, a mystery of the Bible for sure. John, when it comes to difficult issues in the Bible, sometimes we sort of retreat and we just try to ignore. Hopefully it'll go away. Uh, But when it comes to something like the Trinity, it's important to know, why is it so critical to understand? Well, I know in the last broadcast that we're going to do on Friday of this week, we're going to talk about exactly that. But a couple of things we should know now. We will not think of Jesus rightly as our Savior, as our Redeemer, until we think of him within the Trinitarian concept. Uh, We'll never understand our salvation. It is deeply tied to the doctrine of the Trinity. You take away the doctrine of the Trinity, and in the end, you'll end up with a works theology every single time. So uh, on on Friday, I'm going to explain that in some detail. Uh, That's essential. Uh, I think, secondly, it's, it's very essential for us when we think about our own relationships to other people, that the relationships between the three persons who are God form a basis for all human relationships today. And I'm going to say more about that as well. So much of life is taken up in the doctrine of the Trinity. One thing we know for sure from today's study is that our God is absolutely unique in all creation. And no matter how we try to describe him, we always fall short. But we do know this. He is the one true God who exists as Father, Son, and Spirit. And what of it? Quite frankly, what difference does it make? Why spend the time? Well, let me just say, we feel it's so critical that we're spending an entire week on the subject. So continue with us as we continue to unpack one of the greatest mysteries of the Bible, the Trinity. Back to the Bible Canada, bringing the truth of God's Word to life. January 25th was a significant day for the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. A new generation of our in-doubt ministry was launched, and you can now get the entire picture of what we're up to with our young adult ministry by visiting our brand new website at indoubt.ca. Let me just let you in on one of the new features. Every Monday, you will be able to listen to our new weekly in-doubt podcast. 
The issues that will be spoken about will be as pointed and relevant as ever, and you'll be able to join Isaac Dagno and Guest as they search their own personal experience and the Bible to discover truth for some of the most difficult of life's questions. The first series is entitled Love and Lust, so check it out and make sure to refer the young people you know to this great Bible engagement ministry. For more information and to find out what the buzz is all about, check out indoubt.ca or call us for more information at 1-800-663-2425.